Have you ever noticed that wherever you go, you are there? Now, I'm, I, I like to say something, you know, profound or at least tweetable every day and every sermon, and so there it is. I'm, I'm, I'm not actually trying to be cute. I'm trying to be, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Wherever you go, you are there. And the challenge with that is that it means that you can't ever get away from yourself. And sometimes... I would like to get away from myself. Sometimes I get tired of myself. I'd like to go on vacation for myself. And I realize, you know, that is just a line that invites jokes. You're only now getting tired of yourself. Like, we've been tired of you for 15 years. Yeah, it, 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 it lends itself to all of that. But I, I, I just want to observe that it would be nice to be nicer it would be nice to be better, and uh, we don't always see the level of better that we would like. So um, we are promised that we will get better, right? That's, that's part of the plan is that, is, that, is that as we yield more and more of our heart to Christ, as we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, that we change, and we are to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. So when people look at us, they are to think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Like that, should, that should represent you every bit as much as your driver's license picture. Right? That, is, that is how we are to be changed. And, and sometimes we see a good deal of change, and sometimes we don't see as much change as we would like to see. And uh, we know, look, we're going to get there because the promises have been made. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will, con- will continue, will complete it. And, and we're told in Romans 8.29, so Romans 8.28 is a passage many memorize, uh, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Those who he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we are promised that we're going to get there. But between our justification, when we come to faith in Christ, and we are declared forgiven, and we are adopted into the family of God, between our justification and our glorification, which is when we die and go to, go to heaven, and we are, we, are then, we are then immediately transformed and better, we're free of sin completely, between our justification and our glorification is to be our sanctification, which is the, the, the process of actually getting better, not necessarily acting better. Now, we can, we can try to act better, but I'm talking about we're, we're actually changed on the inside and we get better. And yet, we don't always see as much of that change as we would like or expect. So, let me tell you about Chuck. Chuck is a friend of mine. Chuck does not attend Christ Church. Chuck, is, as best I know, Chuck has never even been in the state of Illinois. He was, uh, he was a neighbor when we were living in Washington, and uh, a good guy, a, a, a good friend, but Chuck was the kind of guy who could not seem to get out of his own way. He could not make things work consistently. 
And uh, it wasn't that Chuck didn't know necessarily what to do. I mean, there's a whole enlightenment project that says that if we know, we will be better. Right? So there was this idea that there will be salvation by education. That as, that as knowledge spreads, people who are inherently good will act good and peace will break out on the, on, on the planet. I mean, that, that's what we were saying 100 years ago. Right? That was the promise right up until World War I and then World War II and the Holocaust and everything else. And, and, all the, and then we finally people were saying, you know, maybe we're not inherently good. Because all we seem to be doing is we just seem to be making bigger weapons. So we're, we're seeing knowledge spread, but we're not seeing people get better. So it wasn't that he didn't know the things that he should do. And it wasn't even that he didn't know the Bible. Uh, he did. He had, a, he had a love for God. And, and uh, because he was often not employed, he had problems keeping serious jobs. He had lots of time. I was always jealous uh, of Chuck because... I'm a pastor, and you, you, a lot of times when you're early and young, you think, I'm going to go be a pastor, and then I'll have all this time to read these great works of history and theology, and, you know, the last 3,000 years, I'm going to, you know, that's not really what the job turns into. The job has got a lot of meetings and agendas and budgets and other things. And so I was always amazed because he was reading all the books I wanted to read, and, and he knew a lot about the Bible. And it wasn't also that, that he didn't believe he could get better. He did. I mean, there are people that don't think we can get better. Right? There, there's, there's a whole line out there where people say, no, you can't change. You never change. Right? That to me is as much a denial of the, of the essence of the Christian faith as denying that Christ rose from the dead. Right? Uh, so it, it is one of the big tensions that you see. I mean, it's, it, is, it, is the, it is the animating issue behind the novel Les Mis. If you've read the novel or seen the, the movie or the musical, you know that, that it opens with Jean Valjean, this ex-con, being given this gracious gift uh, by the priest. And so you've got grace setting things up, but then you've got uh, Javert is the, is the detective who continues to chase John Valjean for a parole violation, and he argues he's a thief, and, and once a thief, always a thief. Men like you never change. And so you've got this tension between grace and the ability to change and the law you're not going to change. So this is an ongoing debate that happens. But, but the Bible is very clear that we can, in fact, get better. And we're supposed to, in fact, get better. And so... What is wrong? Why don't we see as much change as we would like? Well, to the, uh, to the Jonathan Haidt illustration, uh, this is an issue of the heart. And, and the heart doesn't always want to do the right thing. So we're in Colossians 3 today to see how Paul thinks about this, sets this up, and uh, this is the first of a two-part Sermon. So this is this is a a lot of setup to understand exactly what the issue is that we're dealing with. So Paul is uh, in one sense Exhibit A on a changed life. Paul is the one who writes the letter to the church uh, in in the, the the letter to the Colossians, the church in Colossae, and so. Uh, he has had a dramatic change of his life. Not just a dramatic conversion. 
he has that on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off the, you know, knocked down by, by Christ and, and, and does a 180 degree turn. But it's not just that he has a, an initial conversion. He actually becomes a radically different person with a radically different message. So in many ways, Paul had been Javert, the, the law guy. He had been the one that said, you know, you, you follow the rules. And he would argue in his letter to the Philippians, nobody followed the rules better than I did. I was a religious rule follower. And so in Philippians 3, he says, I, I checked every box. You think you checked every box? I checked every box better than you did. I was born of, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I went to all the right schools, zealous in keeping the law. He says, if, if you could get better by trying hard, I did it better than you did. But he said, but all of that I consider rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of the grace, the love of God. He, so so in, in this, Paul is the guy that changed and he's writing to the Colossians to try and explain how he was changed. So he's in prison. This guy, Epaphras, who, who had started the church in Colossae, comes to visit Paul in a prison and he tells him about this, this church in Colossae, which has now got people that are struggling because of uh, sort of external pressure. And, uh, and, and so Paul writes, he's not been there, but he writes to them. And, and in his letter to the Colossians, the first chapter is largely, it's got some introductory stuff, but then it's largely a celebration of Christ, how much better Jesus is. Jesus, we got some of the highest uh, Christology of the whole New Testament in Colossians chapter 1 as Paul is just exalting Jesus. And then in chapter 2, Paul talks about how it's not about religion, right? It's about the gospel. So he says, look, religion says, I obey, therefore God loves me. And the gospel says, no, God loves me, therefore I obey. So religion is, is got motivation which is based on fear and in, insecurity. Maybe, I, I've got to do more to be right with God. I've got, to, I've got to give more, serve more, be better, or maybe my good works aren't outweighing my bad works. And so there's a lot of motivation of fear and insecurity. And Paul says, look, the, the motivation of the gospel is joy. Because what I understand is, yeah, I can never tip the scale. Like, I can never be good enough that I, I measure up to God. They, they, the, an assessment was made. I'm not getting invited to be a member of the Trinity. I'm too broken for that. I cannot live up to God's standards. But God loves me. The, the hero in this is God. It, it, the, the, the love for me is not generated by me being so lovable. It is the love of God. It is a subject-generated love. And so I am loved in Christ. Consequently, I am motivated by joy. <laughs> so it's a very different motivation. And, and re- religion says, I am going to obey God in order to 
get my way. I'm going to obey God, and if I do enough good things, if I'm nice, if I do these things and I don't do these things, then God will do whatever for me that I want. I want to, want to get into this grad school, or I, or, or I want my kid to do this, or I want, I want this to happen. And if I'm good, if I'm trying good, if I'm religious, then God will bless me. And the gospel says, uh, I, am, I am loved by God, and I am going to try and obey for God. Not so I get something. Because I'm not, I don't, I don't want something past God. What I want is more of God. I am motivated out of the love and the character and the goodness of God. So in chapter 2, we get this contrast between, between law and grace, between religion and a relationship with God. And then in chapter 3, which is where we're looking, what we get is, is Paul almost answering the, the argument that is habitually made, which is, if it's free, like, like if God loves me because God loves me because of Christ, if God loves me and I'm not going to get special favors by being good, then why would I be good? Like I wouldn't be good. So uh, I, I, would, I would just do whatever I wanted to do. And, and so Paul is answering that objective, and he, he talks about how it is that we actually still become good because of who God is. And that's what is getting set up here, and, and you heard it already read today. Uh, I had verses 1 through 4 read, and then also verses 9 and 10. And I had 9 and 10 read because that's where he talks about being a new creature. I just want to note that, that what Paul is saying is that we're expected to change. Our beliefs change. Our character change to such an extent that we get described as being a new person. Right? You put on a new nature. A new, you're a new creature. So it's a pretty radical change that Paul's talking about. So how does that happen? He says... Chapter uh, 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ. And this, by the way, because we just had this baptism, it's worth noting that, that that's sort of an allusion in one sense often to what happens in baptism. So in baptism, you are, when you go under the water, you're crucified. You're identifying, you're being crucified with Christ. And then as you come up out of the water, you are identifying in the resurrection with Christ. So since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Set your heart on things above. So here's where we get to this idea of the heart. And in fact, it's not simply here. The word heart shows up about a thousand times in the Bible. It's a big topic. And uh, it's not just that it shows up a lot, but it, they're very critical passages. So Deuteronomy is the, the passage that says, what does God expect of you? You shall love, this is what God expects of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Or uh, Proverbs chapter 4. We have a passage where, um, where Solomon says, above all else, right? if you don't listen to anything else, If you're only going to get one thing from this letter that I'm writing to you, guard your heart, for out of it 
overflows life. So the heart is, is critical. It's, it's, it's imperative that we understand the heart. And the way Scripture talks about the heart is different than you might think. And so it's imperative that we understand some things about the heart, which is what I want to set up uh, today. And then I want to look ahead just briefly at, at what we're going to see next week. So four things that we need to understand about the heart. Um, it's, 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 this isn't one of the four. It's, we're not talking, let's, let me just state the obvious, we're not talking about a muscle that pumps blood. Uh, nor are we talking about uh, romance and Valentine's Day and sentimentality and that kind of aspect of the heart. The Bible uses the heart in, in a different way. And it is, it, the Bible uses the heart as command central. So it is, it is the essence of your being. It is, it is sort of the totality of who we are. It is the hub of our personality. Uh, it is. I, I, I did some work on this during my sabbatical because I was. Just, there, there's, there's all these different things that get referred to in sort of the human anthropology. We got, we got heart, soul, spirit, mind, will. You know, I was just trying to figure out what, when do these th- when are these just it's just Hebrew parallelism or Greek parallelism. It's just the same thing said a different way, and when is there actually a difference? And so the heart is. Um, it is an amalgamation of our ideas, our beliefs, our values, our, our feelings, our memories, our dreams. It's pulling everything together. It is, it is one uh, scholar said, it is our interior motivational architecture uh, that provides for our behavior. The heart doesn't just speak to our emotions, it speaks to our thinking and to our willing. So much of what we as 21st century moderns would say is the mind, the Bible would refer to as the heart. The heart includes the mind. So this is, this is a, a little bit more of a word almost like our soul. And what we need to understand is that what the, what the heart wants, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and our will carries out. So it starts very much with our heart. What our heart wants. The heart is the elephant, and the rider is the mind. And when the, when the mind and the elephant are... are uh, in, in sync, then the elephant goes where both the elephant and the mind want to go. When the heart decides it wants to go someplace different than the mind, it can be a real fight for the mind to get the heart to go in, in, down the path that it wants it to. The heart generally makes the plans. So, <clears throat> the heart is command central. The second thing we need to understand is that the heart, our heart is broken. And it's not just that it's broken, it's that it's broke bad. It's evil. It's not entirely evil. Heart is good, but the heart has been corrupted. And it's been corrupted by evil. And this is, this is what Jesus says um, to the Pharisees. He's trying to explain to them um, why Jesus doesn't have his disciples go through all the ritual hand-washing that they 
that they advocate. One of the one of the first century Jewish books the Pharisees would look at. There were eighty eight zero eighty pages of rules about washing your hands, because it was it was not it was considered a pathway to religious purification. How are you going to be pure? Well, you've got to you've got to guard yourself, and so there's all these. And if it's a Monday, you wash your hands one way, and if it's if you've touched meat, you do this. And if you're supposedly going to go into the temple, you got to do it this way. And there's all these rules about hand washing. And Jesus is like, forget all that stuff. What are you talking about? Those are, that's just that's just nonsense. I'm not going. I'm not. I'm not going to comply with any of that. And so the Pharisees come after him. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse uh, 16, he says. Uh, to them, they're in the, they've been in a debate. It's been going on about a handful of things, and now it's switched to this hand washing. And he goes, "Really? Are you so dull?" Jesus asked them. "Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? It's not the things that go into a mouth, a person's mouth, that corrupt them. It's the things in their heart that defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander." These are what defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So we need to understand that our hearts uh, are in trouble. I was interacting with a guy uh, yesterday who was telling, was telling some of us about um, sharing the gospel with the woman that was cutting his hair. So he had gone in and uh, get his hair cut and uh, didn't know this woman. Um, and she was very pregnant. And he sits down in, you know, in, in the chair. And she's getting ready to cut his hair. And she looks, and he's now looking in the mirror. He says, and I can see her. I see her look to the other, one of the other um, hairstylists. And he, he says, she turns to this other, other woman and she says, well, everything is going right in my life, but there has got to be more to life than this. So he said, uh, he, looks, he looks in the mirror and he looks at her and he says, wow, that's quite a statement. Um, and uh, he said, you know, have you ever been in love with somebody but not been able to, to express it? And she goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. And he said, what was that like? She goes, well, it was It was horrible. Okay. He says, well, what I've found in my life is that I have a lot of things to be thankful for. The challenge was to, be, was to figure out who to be thankful to. He says, what? He says, well, because what I've found in my life is, he says, I've got a lot of things to be thankful for. And it's not the, it's not the things that were actually that, that, are, that are determining my life. He goes, what I, what I realized is I needed, to com- I needed to complete something. I needed somebody to be thankful to. And he said, she went over and she got a piece of paper and she goes, yeah, I'm going to write that down. And so she wrote it down. And uh, so she comes back and, and he says, uh, you know, what, what I've found is that I, I, need, I need to be appreciative. And he goes, and as a, as a Christian, I've found that I, that, that the, that, that my life has value once I can express that love. Just like you could, you could finally sort of complete 
the love when you could say to the person that you love that you love them. That that's part of the whole loving process. She goes, I agree with that. And he goes, she wrote that down. And he says, it ended up taking an hour and a half to get his hair cut. And so, so uh, they continue to have this conversation. And she says, you know, what I'm really worried about actually is I, I'm not certain that I'm being responsible. It's, that it's responsible for my husband and I to bring a child into this world that's so full of evil. And he says, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of craziness out there. There's a lot of evil out there. He goes, but I found that that I actually need to be a little less concerned about the evil out there and more concerned about the evil in my heart. And she goes, oh, i got to write that down. And so she writes it down. And she says, I completely agree with that. She says, you know, I'm a good person, but I find that it, it's really hard to be a good person, and I'm not as good as people think I am. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, I, I know. That's, that's because our heart is broken. And he says, you know, as, as Christians, we talk about that being sin. He says, it's not sin. People think sin is doing certain things or not doing certain things. He goes, it's a little bit more that sin is a power that, 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 that pulls us down and holds us back. And she goes, ooh, I like that. So, so we're praying for this woman uh, to, to place her faith in Christ. But the point is that, that the heart is command central. And our heart has got a fatal defect. <laughs> so command central has a fatal defect. And it's, it's worth just noting that what Jesus is saying here is not that we suffer because we don't know enough. And it's not that we suffer because of outside influences, the culture or whatever else. Certainly, we can suffer from not knowing, and knowing is good. And knowing across all fronts is good. Knowledge is good. And yes, uh, there are outside influences. There are dark forces that pull against us. There are, sometimes we can find ourselves in a culture that has got a swift current that pulls us in the wrong direction. Yes, outside influences also matter. But what Jesus is saying here fundamentally is, <laughs> the problem we have is the brokenness of our heart. Point number three. It's actually a little bit worse than that. Because our heart Jeremiah tells us, is deceptive. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? And what this statement is not saying, what Jeremiah is not saying, is that sin is deceptive. It is. Right? Sin deceives us. It's, it always lies. It always promises more at a less cost than it delivers. It, and so sin is deceptive. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is our heart deceives us. So this is, this is why, by the way, in, in Psalm 51, that David prays, right, uh, Lord, search my heart. Search me and know me. Because David is realizing, I don't know myself that well. Now, I will just say that um, one of the things that I've learned is that, um, as a pastor, is that there's a lot of denial out there. Like, there's a lot of people who do not see themselves very clearly. And I see this as a pastor. I've seen this for 30 years as a pastor. And 
five, eight years ago, I started to realize, oh, wow, (laughs) pastor, you don't see yourself very clearly. And that's a scary thing. Now, I had some experience with that before in my 20s and again in my 40s. I I found myself, uh, we'll just say sideways with, with a number of people. And these are people close to me. These are people that I love. And they were sort of consistent in one voice of saying that uh, I was wrong about something. And I was unified in myself saying, no, I see this correctly. You don't. And eventually I had enough insight to say, okay, these are people that are for me. And if they're telling me I'm not seeing something clearly, then I need to go figure out how to see it clearly. And so I went to a therapist and did this again, as I said, in my 20s and then again in my 40s. Um, And it's very unsettling to say, I'm thinking that perhaps my perception of myself is off. That I may not be seeing things very clearly. And I, I need, I need, like, I need to see clearly to know how to make plans. And, and what do I trust? And so this passage, Jeremiah 17, 9, is a very, uh, it's a very uh, unfortunate passage. It, there's a double whammy. So what we're, we're being told, heart is grand central, the heart has a problem, and guess what? We do a really bad job of understanding what that problem is. Like the, the dials that we're looking at aren't accurate. And so um, this, is, this is a real challenge. Uh, I, I read a study uh, last year out of Duke University. Uh, professor there, social psychologist Dan Airley, wrote a book. And the book is called um, uh, uh, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. How We Lie to Everybody, uh, Especially Ourselves. And, and it's, a, it's quite a book to read because he just does all these studies and, and, and says, look, people fundamentally lie about two things. First of all, they, or, excuse me, they fundamentally lie for two reasons. One, for selfish gain. So whether we're going to call this a lie, a white lie, bending the truth, rounding error, whatever, there's just a whole lot of uh, not saying everything, you know, whatever you want to call it, because there's just a lot of... There's a lot of lying uh, for selfish gain. And he says the second reason that we lie is so that we can look in the mirror. So we lie to ourselves because we don't want to be somebody that lies for selfish gain. We don't want to think that that's who we are. So we lie to ourselves in order to feel good about who we are. And in this book, he sort of, you know, knowing that this is what's going on, sort of confronting people with their lying. And it's very, very, very hard. (laughs) Even when you've got evidence that you have lied and you're watching yourself on a video having lied to realize, oh, huh. But then what kicks in, he says, is, and, and he called it our amazing cognitive flexibility. Uh... What kicks in is all the rationalization that we offer. And uh, so th- this, this study out of Duke ta- calls it cognitive, uh, amazing cognitive flexibility. 
most other people refer to it as, as uh, rationalization. The Bible says it's, it's deception and sin. <laughs> and we're deceiving ourselves, right? This is, this, is the, this is the problem. The heart is command central. It's controlling how we live. It's controlling everything. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a fatal flaw. We don't do a very good job of seeing that flaw because the dials that we get on our life are, are skewed in ways that we want to we see. There's one other piece of bad news here. It gets worse because our hearts, the Bible tells us, our hearts can grow hard. Our conscience can be seared. Different, different passages in Scripture use different terms. And, and, the, and the general idea is that um, over time, our heart becomes calloused. And when I was, a, I, don't have, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but I, I, I do believe it's true. I was told when I was, um, early on as a Christian, I was told, um, sin once, sin twice. And the idea was, anything you do once, you're very likely to do twice. So never say to yourself, I'm just going to get it out of my system. Because that's not the way it works. Sin once, and you're far more likely to sin again, because our heart begins to grow a little callous. And the guilt level can go down. Our conscience can be seared. And the other thing I I heard was that uh, part of following God demands that we learn to listen to him and to hear him. And his voice is often very soft. And so you've got to learn to listen. But if you don't obey the soft voice that you hear, it'll be harder to hear it the next time. So, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I do believe that our hearts can be softer but I'm not certain we do a very good job with heart management or repentance. And so we run the risk that our hearts grow hard. So, Houston, we have a problem. Our hearts are grand central. Uh, they've got a problem. We're, we're very unable to diagnose the problem. And the problem is getting worse if we're not careful. So what do we do? That's next week's sermon. <laughs> but I'm going to shine my brights ahead just a little bit and say there's three things that, that we're going to see in this Colossians 3 passage, which is not an exhaustive heart management. We'll be looking at this again uh, in the Psalm series to follow. But, but we see, he says, first of all, since you have been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1, since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Right? We've got to learn to have affections for God. We've got to learn to have affections for heaven. We've got to learn to think about eternity and not to, be, not to just be shaped by this life. Secondly, he's going to say, uh, since you have been hidden in Christ, which I think is just a great way to talk about the gospel. Because that's when I, stand, when I stand before God, right, I want to be completely invisible. I want to be hidden in Christ, right? I do not want, I do not, I'm not going to stand on my works at all. I want to say, I'm with him, right? And it is the righteousness of Christ that I'm claiming as my own because that's the promise. 
He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that the righteousness of Christ can be ours, right? So that's the great exchange. That's the gospel. That's the promise. So we've got to hide ourselves more consciously and thoughtfully in Christ. And, and my, my goal over the last year and a half has been not to get up from my morning devotion times until I have reminded myself and persuaded myself that I have nothing to prove. Right? I don't have to earn. <laughs> the one who knows me best loves me most. And I, I, I can rest in that. And then the last thing is going to be in Colossians 3 is going to be a list of things that we're to do and not to do as we try to navigate and manage our character. So, Heavenly Father, we ask uh, that you would guide us, help us to set our hearts on things above and to hide ourselves in Christ, to learn to manage our heart in ways that bring you glory, that help us actually change from the inside out. To your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.